Welcome to the Bootstrap Founder. Today, I'm talking to Moritz Dausinger, a serial indie hacker with several exits under his belt. Moritz most recently pivoted his software business Refiner after 18 months of trying to figure out a way forward. Well, now he's found it. We will chat about figuring out how to structure sales, how and who to hire, and if he really wants to sell this business again for a third time. And before we get to our conversation about all of this, let me introduce the sponsor of today's episode. Now imagine this, you're a founder who's built a solid SaaS product, you acquired customers and you're generating consistent monthly revenue. The problem is you're not growing for whatever reason, lack of focus, lack of skill, or just plain lack of interest, and you feel stuck. What should you do? Well, the story that I would like to hear is that you buckled down and somehow reignited the fire, getting past yourself and the cliches, and you started working on your business rather than just in the business. You start building an audience, and you move out of your comfort zone, and you do sales and marketing and all the things you don't like doing. And in six months, you've tripled your revenue. The reality isn't that simple. Situations may be different for every founder facing this particular crossroad. And too many times the story ends up being one of inaction and stagnation until your business becomes less valuable or worse, worthless. If you find yourself here or your story is likely headed down a similar road, I offer you a third option. Consider selling your business on acquire.com. Capitalizing on the value of your time is a smart move. Acquire.com is free to list and they've helped hundreds of founders already. Go to acquire.com and see if this is for you, if this is the right option for you at this time. All right, here is Moritz Stausinger. Moritz, I really have to thank you, not just for being on this podcast today, but for having been on podcasts in the past, in uh, August of 2017. And this is six years ago, which is crazy. You went on the Indie Hackers podcast, and that was episode 24. It was barely a couple months old at that time. You talked about building and selling mail parser. And I remember this podcast episode so vividly. I have like a, a visual memory of this. I was traveling through Berlin, just coming home from work in the S-Bahn right there. And I heard you mention that you sold your business to a private equity company. And it blew my mind that day. I just did, didn't know. I didn't know that was possible. And you also mentioned the name of that company, which is something I will never forget because we ended up selling our SaaS business to the same private equity, equity company two years later. And in a way, that makes you responsible for our <laughs> exit. <laughs> so I just wanted to <laughs> extend a very big thank you to you and, and just point out how powerful it can be to share your story in public like you did on that podcast so i'm really really glad you're here today as well so thank you so much for that man you you, you can't imagine how happy i am to hearing <laughs> this um and now look at us uh what six years later seven That's years bizarre, later right? so, yeah almost seven it's... and i i remember when i got asked um to speak on the indie hackers podcast i was hesitating it was quite new i knew the website i but, well, it was kind of a niche experience back then, this whole indie hackers thing. And, um, yeah, luckily I did. I think yeah, there's so many, also from my career and my story after coming afterward, so many good things came from this one podcast, which, which was, I think, actually my first one ever. <laughs> so, nice. um, 
Yeah, lucky me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I stumbled into the right thing, right? That's right. That's a that's a great start to to start podcasting. Probably in what is still the best podcast in the space, right? Or <laughs> at least the the most renowned podcast that I could think of when I think about yeah. indie hacking. Yeah. So, are you still an indie hacker? Do you still consider yourself an indie hacker? Oh well, well, well. well. I think I stopped putting myself a label on uh, quite a oh. long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> because like, it really depends on who I'm talking to. Like, for example, if I would talk to my parents, I would say, uh, I'm a Mittelstand-IT-Unternehmen, like a German, uh, I don't know, small business, yeah. IT company. So I'm not a startup. I'm not a, um, I would, yeah, I would say it's a small IT company. Uh, we are several people, so I'm not really an indie hacker, but I'm the solo founder. Uh, at the same time, it's mostly um, self-financed. So yeah, you could <laughs> say know, I'm right? the indie hacker. You could also <laughs> say I'm just a forty-something guy who has an IT company and uh, building software, right? Yeah, I guess that's that's what most Germans would be much more easy, easily kind of attracted to as a concept. They would understand like, you know, the mid, middle Mittelstand, that's what we call it, right? The <laughs> yeah. middle middle class small business thing. Yeah. That is something relatable to most people. It is interesting that you mentioned this. Like you, you said you're having a team, so you're not an indie hacker anymore. That that I mean, that's not exactly what you said, but it is kind of, you know, a, a sentiment that once you grow your business to a certain size, it feels less indie, less independent. It's still might be financially right you might might still have most of your funds coming actually from your customers but there is some dependency in the business either for your team members so they have a job like a stable income or to customers who really rely on you now there is a dependency in there that that is something that i i don't hear many people talk about like what that dependency that newfound dependency in a previously independent business is let's let's maybe talk about what you're currently building or maybe yeah, okay, let's start with that because we can talk about the things you built in the past afterwards. We don't need to be chronologically correct, but you're, you're currently working on Refiner. And I think Refiner has an amazing, long, and I guess arduous and stressful story. And I would like to hear about it. <laughs> yeah. How did that go? Like after selling your first two businesses, you started Refiner. What, what made you jump into that again? Yeah. Uh, so when I sold my last company, Doc Parser, I had an uh, agreement with a buyer um where i would stay on for a couple of what was one and a half years actually and i would gradually um transition out of the company so his interest was basically as long as things are going well i'm going i'm going to work less and less fine for me um however back then having a wife having kids means you are not free to go anywhere in the world so you kind of stuck where you are in the office still and so i thought why not just build the next one right uh i mean i need to do something and um so when i was running doc parser i had this uh need to qualify my signups like it would create an account i didn't want to um have too many questions while they are creating their accounts. I wanted to, uh, them to experience the software right away. But I still had some questions I would like have, have answered. And so what I did, I was displaying an in-app survey five minutes after they created an account, asking two simple questions. Um, just for context, like doc parsers are document processing software. So I was asking the question, how many documents are you processing per month? What type of documents do you want to process? And 
having the answer of those uh, to those two questions allowed me first of all making some kind of excel and charts and whatever to figure out who my customers are and secondly i could identify bigger accounts i could say oh this one looks really interesting i want to talk with this guy i want to make sure that they are having a good experience um and so i like it worked really well. I liked the idea. I didn't find find the product doing that. So I, back then I was basically hard coding all this, and so I thought this would be my next uh, venture. I started coding this very simple idea, and well, one and a half years later, I found myself with a enormously complex, enterprisey kind of lead qualification solution nobody was asking for literally nobody was asking for. Wow. so even though i created a couple of companies before i i did a pretty classic beginner uh, uh mistake and you know that the, the issue there was I, I built a first of all a software nobody was asking for secondly a software where you would need to have some kind of enterprise sales process something i really don't like doing and so on and so on. So I felt like, okay, I'm kind of stuck somewhere. Let's go back. Let's do a kind of pivot and go back to this initial simple idea of showing surveys inside an app. And this is what basically refiners today. Uh, so I threw away uh, like 90% of the code, launched one week before lockdown, COVID lockdown in France. Perfect timing. Um, but well, it gave me some time to like, I don't know, like, I think this whole first COVID months, uh, it was good that it, the software was quiet. You know, there was not much going on. So I, uh, I mean, there were other stuff to take care of, for example, the kids. And um, then after, in total, I would say two years after starting this new project, uh, I was at the point where I had a significant MRR of, uh, I don't know, that was like one or two thousand dollars a thousand dollars per month uh uh which was for me to sign okay i finally after two years i did it <laughs> i had yeah. built another software which was kind of uh working well yeah that's the beginning of this refiner story yeah thanks for sharing this thanks also for just being honest both to yourself and to me and everybody listening about you know, like even even if you did a couple of things before and you were successful, doesn't mean you cannot fall in the same traps again, right? To make the same mistakes, and it's probably I, I don't know. Maybe I, I just want to ask you this: Did you feel like you knew better, you know, after having built two businesses that you knew exactly what your customers need, and then you build it? Was that it? Some kind of hubris? Some kind of oh yeah, I know better than everybody else? Yeah, 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 kind <laughs> of. So like I, I mean. <laughs> At that time, DocParser was the third product I had built and which became big. Huh? And so I was like, oh, okay, I found my model. I like building software. I like the early days. So I'm just going to continue building one project after the other SaaS uh, product, B2B SaaS product, because I figured it all out. I know it all. And <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I think what helps you... But like the experience um, I have right now definitely helps in the day-to-day -day operations. Um, it helps with a lot, a lot of things. I wouldn't neglect it, neglect it, but it doesn't prevent you from making stupid mistakes. It doesn't prevent you from not finding the MVP you are looking for. Um, and it really reminded me that Going from zero to something is just so 
hard and you need to have luck and you need to have good timing and you need to you know you have a lot of things checked to be there once you have something in your hand which i mentioned before like uh, one to two thousand uh dollars mrr um then i think it's much much more about execution uh but before that it's some kind of like magic <laughs> where you yeah. yeah well some everybody does it different but uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's an interesting point. Once you have something, not only is it is it just about execution at that point, but or no, it's never just about anything, right? You know, entrepreneurship is everything at the same time. But if you have something, not only can you actually put more energy into what you know works, you can also show it to other people and make other people interested. And I think you you did that, right? Because for your first products, you only really put your own money into this. You, you just used your own funds and that was it. But for Refiner, you went a different route. Do you want to explain a little bit what you did once you reached that point in MRR? Yes. Um, yeah, just to, to, to follow up on this, the first one, like I feel like once you have something, then that also means, yeah, as you mentioned, you can show it to somebody and you have, uh, most importantly, customers. Yeah. And once, oh, once, yeah. You have, once you have 10 customers or 50 customers, I feel like the job changes the job is then to listen to what they're saying having your own vision as well and trying to match those two things and um so i'm I'm definitely not the guy saying whatever the customer says i'm gonna implement it it's more like whatever they say and it fits my product strategy it's maybe already on my to-do list uh then i'm doing it right so that this is why i think it, it's um getting not easier, but different once you have 10 or uh, let's say 50 customers. And um, yeah, to follow up on your point about what I did once I went to the, uh, to the 1 to 2K MRR, uh, at that time, I already had like nearly two years of uh, own money spending and no salary uh, put into this company. And I felt like I have now two choices. Either I do that again like another year without the salary or maybe two years without a salary or maybe i can get a little bit of extra uh um, outside funding inside this company and you know like the reason why i never raised before was because i didn't really like the venture capital path you are set on once you raise uh, with a vc which means seed round and series a series b and you basically are promising everybody I'm going to build a really, really big company and um, good for people who want to do that. I didn't want to do that. So I never actually considered the, the VC path something um, which would fit to me. Um, but uh, luckily, during the last years, there were a couple of funds coming up, which are, uh, they call themselves bootstrapper friendly. So you can get an investment. Uh, they definitely are funds, so they, they want to have a return on their investment, but they're not necessarily setting you up on the path of a typical VC startup. And so that made it uh, compatible to me. And uh, so I raised um, some money with Calm Company Fund. And uh, I actually really, I can full hardly say I don't, re don't regret it because it allowed me to just really accelerate a little bit, like uh, hiring freelancers for marketing and um, also a developer, freelancer, and um, just go faster. And uh, with 
not many strings attached. There are for sure strings attached. You are giving away a part of your company, right? And the, the moment you want to sell your company, it's also you need to give money back to them. So you are kind of signing up that this is becoming a bigger thing than just uh, like a project you would sell for, let's say, 50 or 100K on, on a micro acquire. It, you're kind of signing up that you want to build a bigger thing. That That's the strings attached to it. Um, yeah, but apart from that, I was really quite happy about that decision. Yeah. Also because, you know, as I mentioned before, I already put in a lot of own money. And I felt like if I continue doing that, it's just becoming more and more um, difficult to make uh, really objective decisions because it, it's still a business, right? It's not, um, it's, it's a business. That's really what I was, to... that's, that's what I'm super interested in because you're saying like with that money, you can make objective decisions and without it, they would have been more, I don't know, fear driven, I guess, which is interesting because most people, whenever they talk about raising money, they say, well, now I need to make different decisions for my investors, mm. right? But that's where the bootstrapper compatibility comes in. Can you kind of explain like, um, that the kind of decisions that you didn't want to make, like the kind of, you know, uh, all your money is in there and now I need to, you know, protect it. What was that? What was driving you at that point? Yeah, it was more like uh, putting too much on my, of my own uh, wealth into one project. Um, and also, you know, like that, that it, I think it's really interesting to ask the question, when are you raising? Yeah. What, what wouldn't work for me, for example, is raise money on an idea because then I would be super nervous. Like, Oh man, this, guy just gave me money and now i need to really need to deliver and need to build something that is working the moment i raised uh, money from tyler from calm company fund I, there was already a software product which was working right it was not profitable but it was working and uh, there was confident enough giving my uh, previous um, experiences with uh, in the in the SaaS space that i thought okay if i can bring it to 2K MR, I'm probably going to be able to bring it to 20 or, or more. And um, so, yeah, that gave me confidence to, 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 to say, from now on, I can do that, but I prefer doing it with outside money than my own money. So. Okay. That, that's, that is exactly what I love about this Bootstrapper compatible model. Like, first off, they are compatible in terms of they don't really interfere with your decision making, which is exactly what you need at that point, right? As a, as a solo founder or as an indie founder, you want to make your independent choices. That's, that's what you signed up for on the whole journey. That's what you want. And they only really take you on if you've proven that the thing you're doing works. Right. Like if you look at Tiny Seed or if you look at the Calm Company Fund or whatever other players in the field exist, they all want you to prove that you can have customers. They need you to already have customers before they give you money, which yeah. is also complete opposite of the VC idea. They want you to just, you know, have a really disruptive idea and maybe some kind of semblance of a product, if at all, you know, like some products don't even exist, but are marketed, you know, in, in the VC space. Not that there's anything wrong with trying to disrupt the world. It's also interesting right as a, as a business approach but i think in, in terms of what we are doing as people who want to build and i mean this in the best sense of the word a lifestyle business a business that allows us to live the way we want to live having somebody who can support us 
like that is great. And I, I have to, I have to mention it. I have a podcast with Tyler where we are building stuff together. So obviously I'm not going to badmouth the idea of the com company fund here. Also being an investor in the fund and also knowing that both you and me and Tyler, we all sold our businesses to the same private equity company. It's a big family, right? Like, yeah. and that's, that's what yeah. I kind of love about the fund. Like it was initially called Ernest Capital when he started and then he, he renamed it to the com company fund, which I think is a much better name. It comes from, a, a place where people really understand what the kind of business that we want to build is about, right? Both Tyler and the mentors and the investors in the fund, we all are effectively solopreneur or really small indie business owners or have been because we sold our businesses, right? So we know exactly what this field is about. And I, I'm, I'm really happy you, you got some, some funding for refiner because apparently it helped you pretty well, right? Like it refiner did. is looking pretty good. It did, and then you know, like I think, I don't, I can't really remember the the. I think you can put it like that. Like it's really about math. Uh, the Calm Company Fund or similar uh, funds assume that eight out of ten investments will work out. Yeah, and which is the opposite to the VC model, where it's basically yeah. two out of ten will work out, and yeah, the right. rest maybe not. And pro- I, I'm not saying this one is better this one is better i can just say this one is more compatible with me as moritz as somebody who likes uh building software products and likes uh uh, organizing my days uh the way i want to and um so yeah uh, i'm happy that i took that and like really um what it really did is that um i switched a little bit my mindset you know i was hiring uh, I was able to hire freelancers uh, in advance, like uh, you know, like you're not profitable yet, but you can burn more money. That's this typical sweet poison uh, all the startups have uh, that they can just burn, burn, burn money. And I felt it. It's really sweet. It's mm-hmm. really good. Um, <laughs> but you, you, yeah. After half a year or one year, you're like, oh wow, I, I already spend half of it or what <laughs> and so you need to be careful with it but it, it did really help in terms of product development and in and, and marketing because um seo like content is one of the big drivers for a refiner and it's a long-term game you know like you need to invest over a long time or period of time it's not something where you can just put down like uh, 500 euros and the next week you're gonna see results it's it, you, you you need to start early and you need to do it good and it will cost some money. And a lot of this money went into that. And uh, so, yeah, that wouldn't have happened without the investment. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. I'm, I'm reminded, as you're talking about like who you hired and the freelancers that are working for you, I reminded um, a talk that Rob Walling was just giving at MicroConf in, in Denver a couple months ago. Um, he talked about the, the first hires that every SaaS, B2B SaaS business should be doing. And I do wonder in your particular case, what is the order of people that you hired? And in a sense of that you hired for part-time or for full-time or even just projects, what order of jobs did you need to hire out? Yeah. So I don't want to make a rule out of that. And I exploring things as I go, but I can just say what I did. Um, for the early uh, iteration of the early product, I hired a website designer to make it look good so that I have a nice website. I did the product myself entirely. So I was lucky enough that I could code and 
build some kind of UI, which is not too, too crazy ugly. Um, but you need to see that my product has an visual part of it. It's the surveys. And these ones were also designed by a designer. So I was able to get a good looking product, which was kind of important for, for my business. Um, next thing was, uh, marketing, like as I said, the SEO, uh, person. Uh, it's, uh, Pavel from Smashing Copy, which I can mm. really recommend. That's cool. Um, and, um, after that, it was a developer, another marketing person. Uh, today we're having also the mobile survey. So I have two mobile developers, a salesperson in Paris. Uh, she's doing, um, basically following up and building up a process around bigger customers so that they, because they have special needs to get onboarded. Um, and who else? That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> I think, no. yeah. Is that, and just that list alone raises so many questions for me, but I'm trying to constrain myself to one at a time. First one, how, how was it hard to, to hire developers for you? Because I felt that so strongly to hire somebody that was supposed to do my work as good as I did mm. it. How was that for you? <laughs> Yeah, 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 no, like uh, really, really difficult when you're a technical founder. And um, so I was super lucky to find Ben. He's also active on Twitter, uh, Digital Trouble is his handle. Um, he was, or he is a senior person I can trust. Nevertheless, you need to do a lot of specs. You need to really write it down in the detail because nobody knows your product better than you do. And secondly, uh, there are parts on the product I think are good for outsourcing. And then there are other parts where I'm basically like, okay, no, I'm the best fit for this particular part of the product. Uh, if one day I'm in the position to hire a full-time employee who is just doing that, for sure he's going to take over. But for right, for right now, um, these are the parts I'm handling and these are parts, for example, uh, in our case, Ben, um, coded uh, the entire dashboard section where you could uh, build your own custom reporting dashboards, like adding a chart and resizing and removing. It was really a nice uh, project apart, which didn't interfere with all the other rest of the software. So that was basically my approach that I would say, uh, no, I can't go outsource all of it, but there are definitely things I can outsource. And even then, it's even then, if you have a really good person it's so difficult to have the coding standards right to make it so that if, well, I mean, I, for me, it's really important that the code base is kind of uniform, you know, like uh, if one day somebody else going to take over, they will find their way because everything is done in the same way, which I value more than the perfect way. You know, it might not be perfect, but at least it's the same way everywhere. So there's a system to it. And all this kind of stuff is really getting more and more difficult more the more people you're putting uh, on the project and yeah so that's the answer of your first question i think uh, some things you can outsource some things i'm not eager to <laughs> man that that is uh that's a great answer like to know what you need to still do and to to also let go of the things that i bet you could do Right, because you have to until you hire somebody for it. Um, so, how much of your day do you still spend coding, like compared to the, all the other things you have to do as a founder? Right now, it's close to zero okay. because, um, and I'm saying this with a 
sad face <laughs> uh, for those who are not uh, watching but listening. No, I, I, I really, I really like coding. Like I, uh, but I know that for the business, I, I'm spending a lot of time on boring new customers. I'm spending a lot of time doing admin stuff like paying bills and paying, yeah, paying contractors, paying. Yeah, moving money around and uh, and like for example, also with the bigger accounts, there's also always legal questions and there's just so much stuff to do. Um, so no, unfortunately, I'm not coding much these days. Uh, and um, one of the next things on my list would be also to hire somebody for exactly this, the technical support. I call it like it's not just support in the way of. Oh, where do I change my my password? It's more like a customer su customer success person who really takes the new customer by their hand and makes sure that they get the most out of their solution. And I think this will free up a lot of time um, once I find the, the right person to do so. Um, because yeah, right now it's a really like uh, less fun than before. <laughs> Let's say like this. before there was a lot of coding and new features and whatever and right now it's more like this showing up every day and mm -hmm. getting this stuff moving yeah? yeah but it's it's part of the game right I mean, yeah so, i mean can't, can't run a business without operations right you still need to to make thing make things happen but i, I was talking to tyler about this on our podcast he was kind of bringing it up because he's been talking to a lot of founders obviously in the fund and he heard from a lot of them that they just want to be contributors to their own projects they still want to contribute they want to be an individual contributor to the code base to the the actual product and often they can't really find it so find the time to do it because there's so much so much else to do so what you're doing right now i think is is very important to even be aware of that just because the business necessitates all this extra work doesn't mean that you cannot find somebody to do it for you right you are not the only person who can so i'm, I'm glad you are you're already thinking through how you can get that work offloaded to somebody else so you can be best at what you're at which seems to be coding at least yeah and i mean uh I think it's a real, real issue, and probably it's so rare that that you find somebody who is good in the beginning of building a company where you need to do, where you need to contribute, and then he kind of switches to uh, like the brothers of Stripe. Uh, yeah. They are coders, and then there's they switched at a certain point into conquering the world. Like I mean, you don't do that by continuing coding i guess you do that by hiring the right people having the, the right strategy and so on and honestly it's um i, I maybe saw so, sounds a little bit self-limiting but I'm, I'm i'm kind of feeling good in this early stage uh world where i'm still contributing a lot and um i'm curious how far i'm gonna go this time with refiner um but i'm it's not something i'm feeling pulled towards to to say Oh, I really want to be managing 100 people in two years. It's it's really not something I'm having in my head when I'm waking up in the morning. It's more like, oh, uh, I think we should probably develop this and that because I feel like that would be a good fit for the product. I'm, I'm more in this world still. Um, again, uh, maybe we talk in five years and then I'm telling you a different story. But right now, today, I'm, I'm more in this mindset there that I'm I am enjoying uh, building products and companies um and let's see how, may, how 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 big we are growing but let's see about that right 
it it does remind me not about like five years in the future because who knows what's going to happen then but it does remind me of five years in the past when i was listening to you on the 24th episode of indie hackers and you know the the mentality you had back then kind of sounds like the mentality you have today you want to build interesting stuff and you want to grow it to a point where you still enjoy building it Right. So maybe let's let's talk about mail parser and doc parser. Like you you did sell them at some point. You did get acquired. I do wonder why that is, because you know, like we, we all either we want to sell or we want to build something for life. Can you explain to me maybe like the, the process of how you f- figured out that you can and wanted to sell a business in the first place? Yeah. So when I built I started building Mayparser. It was meant to be a fun side project where I'm actually really n- not having any ambition there. I was working for a startup studio in Paris, a very well-known startup studio, really having the, the best job in the world. Um, it was It's called eFounders. It's really where everybody wants to work. And I was able to work there, so I had a great job there. And... Um, yeah, but I still built this software and then it kind of uh, took its own life. And then there was this moment where I had uh, 5K MRR on the side project and uh, pretty much the same in the salary. And I needed to decide where is this going. And uh, I decided I want to give it a try. I want to see how far I can go. And um, at that time, I also... Uh, read a website um, on a website about FE International, which was a business broker. And I was like, what? Does this exist? A business broker? <laughs> like like a real estate broker, but somebody yeah. was just selling online estates. And I was like super fascinated by that. And um, then, yeah, somehow I saw, okay, ah, right. If you, if you bring it to this kind of MR, you can sell it for this much of money. And then, well, it became interesting as an idea. And then, yeah, by discovering this whole world, this idea was a little bit uh, set in my head to say, okay, maybe I can bring it to a point where I can sell it. And, uh, you know, like people are always referring to this life-changing money or whatever. Yeah, sorry to say it, but it was kind of true. Uh, It allowed us to um, do a big down payment for an apartment and secure myself as a um, entrepreneur in the way of like having like first of all more self-confidence uh in that i'm like okay apparently what i'm doing i'm doing it correctly secondly uh most of my apartment in one of the most expensive cities in europe is already paid that's good um and if i can do it once maybe i can do it twice so like it was really um it was not in the sense of now I'm buying big watches and cars and whatever. Not at all. It was just like giving me some kind of peace of mind and security in life. And um, yeah, so that was really attractive as, as an idea. And that's why I, I sold uh, Mail Parser. And at the same time, back then I had created Dog Parser, which was kind of a sister product. And um, Kevin, the buyer of Mail Parser, from Shoreswift Capital uh, back then, um, agreed that I could continue building up Dog Parser and selling May Parser to him, and it was basically a win-win, basically a win-win situation because what I like to do is building up stuff, and what he likes to do is 
buying stuff that is already big. <laughs> so <laughs> I told him, let, let's let do it so. He, I, I continue working on Doc Parser. And once I feel uh, it's time is ready and we, we both agree that the time is ready, I would have, he would have the right of first refusal. So he is not obliged to buy it, but he can buy it. And this is how it happened. And so these two were basically, well, two different products, two different adventures, but one story, right? Yeah, that's awesome. It's it's nice to to build that connection to the thing you were just saying with Kevin. That is that is important, right? Because in this space, even though there's a lot of competition among funds and private equity companies, it is nice to know somebody that you can trust. I I, I very very fondly remember our first interaction, like around the time that that we were trying to sell Feedback Panda, our business, and also we're looking at Showswift. And I did a lot of outreach to people like you and Tyler, people who had sold their businesses before, just to make sure that there's a relationship that I can actually trust with these people. Because th you said it, like life-changing amounts of money. And that is scary, right? It's scary to deal with something that is so valuable, your thing. They even get to look into it. They look into your P&L. They look into your, you know, all your documents, your cash flow, and maybe even your database or something right you you have to be be really protective so knowing that you already have somebody you can trust and sell this next thing to probably gave you a very different or at least a, a more secure feeling in building that business is that right yeah yeah, yeah definitely like uh, i mean the first one i sold through fe international because of that because i didn't know anyone uh, I mean, yeah, you could, I could have probably sent out an email or a Twitter tweet. I want to sell this thing. Give me, give me your offers. But as you said, you, 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 it's so, it's so scary. You are scary. You are scared to, to mess it up and you're scared to have this once in a life opportunity, uh, to sell something valuable. And you might end up with somebody who tells you he's giving you a super high price and whatever but in the end it's just gonna go really sideways and then you're having a lot of trouble and um, this is why i worked with f international in the beginning uh and then on the second one i already knew kevin and i knew he's a stand-up guy and his word and virtual handshake we, we didn't yeah. do the handshake really That's uh is worth uh is I don't know how to say it. It's worth <laughs> something. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot. And, I, I agree. Um, yeah, I have to say. And, same and you know, like, uh, just uh, it's a funny story. He, he's actually in Paris uh, next week for um, on a personal trip. And we are planning to meet because, um, well, we kind of kept the contact and became friends, more or less. And, you know, like, that's just really nice, you know, like that you can uh keep those relationships over a long period of time and build up trust and all this kind of things and then also have a good time as uh some dudes walking around in the city and talking about life yeah, so yeah, that's, that's pretty good i'm happy to hear that i i have the same relationship with kevin i mean not exactly the same obviously but we still talk to i actually um when, when this episode comes out kevin's episode will be the one before this because i just oh, talked to him last nice. week right so um we, we we just chat all the time and we even have like these official public conversations too because we both have a lot that we want to share and talk about in public and and you're doing this now too i'm, I'm really happy about this which kind of brings me to to my next thought you, you're not very active on twitter 
Twitter, at least not in the moment. But I, I see you sharing all this stuff right here and you've written about it. You've obviously went on podcasts and you are on podcasts. Are you kind of getting back into the kind of building in public game into sharing your story? Is that what ha what's happening or is it just like a, a fluke right now? It is. Um, no, let's say different. I made a break from it. Like I was much more active on Twitter um, up until, I don't know, maybe one and a half years ago, one year ago. And uh, there was no real reason or real event or whatever, a big decision. I just kind of, I don't know, posted less and less and, and you know, like uh, felt like, I mean, this kind of stuff you don't need to, you either you want to do it or you don't want to do it, yeah. right? If you don't want to do it, then there's no, no reason in doing it. Yeah, and, nice. but yeah, definitely a couple of weeks ago, I felt like, okay, uh, why not go on podcasts again? That was always something I really enjoyed doing because it's much deeper and much more, there's much more context in it. And, um, so I was got contacted by one guy from Germany. It's a German bootstrapper podcast. Uh, happy bootstrapping as you are talking German. Listen to it. Really nice guy. Um, and um, yeah, I liked it. And then I thought, why not do it a little bit more? Because sharing is important. And um, it's not really sure. I mean, sure, it's nice to be invited somewhere and then talk. And it's nice for the ego and whatever. But I wouldn't be where I am without all those blog posts, uh, spending hours and hours on, in, uh, and, on Hacker News back then and Indie Hackers and Twitter. And this is basically the university. I mean, I did study stuff, but I studied <laughs> other stuff. Yeah, different things, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> all, everything I did, I'm doing today, I basically learned uh, through that. So I feel like it always sounds a little bit cheesy, but I feel like it's the right thing to to share yeah. and give back. Yeah, 100%. That's that's why I'm here. And, and I, I guess it's also why you're here. So it's the perfect example. And I told you this in the beginning. If it wasn't for you, I don't know. Like, I, like you know, I, I don't know what would have happened because when Kevin reached out to us and we had shared like our MRR numbers, our Stripe numbers on Indie Hackers, we kind of plugged that in. So he found us through Indie Hackers and then reached out to us through an email. I knew exactly who he was. And you did that. You did that for him. And you did that for me, right? You connected us without even knowing that you, you were connecting us in some future scenario. And I think that's what, what at least teaching in public, which is what you're currently doing here with me right today. That is what that can do on such a massive scale. And like prior to, to hitting the record button, we were talking about this, like the indie hacker scene has grown so much, right? Over the last couple of years, when you were in episode 24, it was still kind of a niche podcast. And now look at the indie hackers podcast and look at startups for the rest of us or other like podcasts in this space that have been going on for years, if not almost decades at this point. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? I, I just, I don't know. I just want to be the share, share my, my gratitude for people like you who were there from the start and sharing their story. And I think it's important. So I can only recommend like doing more of this and also sharing more on Twitter. Cause I think you, you have, you have a lot of pull. You have a lot of people following you and yeah. you have a lot of interesting insights to share from running yeah. a business. I feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I feel like, I mean, there's always like, um, uh, let's say like this, I I'm really convinced like every journey is different. And, you know, when I'm sometimes I'm doing mentoring sessions and, 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 and I had once this situation where I was telling somebody um, something and then half a year later, they told me, 
well, half a year later, you told me that and it didn't work. And I, I was like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I just said stuff which worked for me. And I feel, so I feel like you need to be really uh, responsible in how you teach and how you share things. And again, I can just tell my story. I can, I'm 100% sure that an indie hacker who is starting today has maybe more thing, more opportunities, but maybe it's also more difficult. I don't know. Like it's different. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's different. Yeah. That's right. So yeah, I think there's a very, um, how to say it, like, uh, you need to be careful not to put yourself there as the guru. Uh, and I understood everything and look at me like with refiner. I, I had, it was the fourth product. I was building the fourth startup and I was convinced I was, uh, having an easy time just executing whatever. And no, it didn't happen. And, um, so yeah, teaching great, but for all people just starting out, every be, be, be mindful about that. Every story is different. And when we both started, when we both sold our company, it was a different time and it sounds really like old dudes <laughs> on the radio <laughs> but it's kind of true yeah it that's was right a different time yeah yeah it's so, and yeah. you you're 100 right like all advice is anecdotal like it's all just a story and experience that you have and no advice is ever completely copyable in in different circumstances i 100 agree and you're right in a way it's not even teaching it's just sharing right it's just sharing your journey it's just giving people just insights into what happened, why you think it happened, not why it happened, because you never really know, right? But why you have a, a strong sense that it happened for a reason. And then th that's all you can do. And people have to pull from that what they what they want to learn. And I love this. That's why I've been asking you questions, not really for you to give me answers on how to do it, but more answers on how you did it. And I, I feel you're doing one other thing. And I kind of want to get back to this because as myself, a coder as well, a technical person, and knowing that many people listening to this are engineers with, you know, not too much, uh, patience for, for marketing or for sales, but they, they do want to build, they do want to make things. You're doing something with Refiner that's really cool. And you, you, you kind of make your documentation for your product kind of a first class citizen of the product. And I want to kind of ask you, like, how, how did that come to be? Why is that? And how do you keep this not just an add on, but like a core part of your product? Yeah. Very interesting because, um, when I look back at the products I was building, um, they kind of reflect me as a person in the way that they are technical. My audience, the users who are using my products like Mayparser, Docparser, and Refiner are at least tech-savvy people. They are not, not coders, but technical people who like that about the software, who like that they have lots of options to customize everything really the way they want to. And so the type of products um, building are, well, I'm not, I don't want to say complex because complex sounds difficult. Uh, <laughs> I, I want them to be super easy, yeah, that's but let's say they are powerful. Yes. And with that comes also options and customizations and all these kind of things. And I feel like if I would not have a really top-notch documentation, I would, uh, it wouldn't fit, right? It would feel weird in a way and I, sometimes i witness that with products they have a beautiful website like really shiny super nice well-made website you sign up and then it's already a little bit not so beautiful the software and then you realize that it's super disappointing because there's not much functionality functionality or it's super complex or whatever and i i 
I don't like this journey. <laughs> I, I rather prefer having uh, a good website, a good product, and a good documentation, <laughs> and great, keep the yeah. standard high. <laughs> and uh, so, so I felt like um, for the type of product I'm building uh, and the audience I'm having, I'm kind of it's my job to say, look, you can do a lot of stuff with this software. It's quite powerful. Uh, and I get it. It's maybe not obvious to you, but it's obvious to me because I built that, but it's definitely not obvious to you because you are using it for the first time. Here's the documentation. I'm trying my best that it's good for you, which then makes my life easier as well because I feel like with every um, user who's finding their answer in the documentation, I have one more, one less email to, to yeah. take care of. Oh, interesting. So, so it's kind of it. It is helping you reducing customer service load because people kind of help themselves. That that does remind me. You were saying in the beginning that the, the thing you built that didn't go anywhere in, initially for Refiner was very like enterprisey sales heavy or focused at that. I guess now what you've been building is more of a low touch kind of SaaS. Do you yeah. think? Do you, I, I, I know it's still both, and that is an yeah. interesting thing. Um, I, I would like to know how you bridge this, like how you built a business that is both low touch SaaS ish <laughs> and you know high high touch sales. But what I'm also interested in, as we are still at documentation, do you think like having a good documentation is actually a beneficial part of your sales process, both in in low touch and in high touch? Like, how does it fit into this kind of dichotomy of of sales? Yeah, that, so really a lot of good good points in there. Um, so when I started out, I started it as a product for startups, starting at thirty nine dollars uh, per month. And I over the time, and it's so obvious once you know it, uh, once you see it, it's so obvious. But then I didn't see it over time. I realized actually companies who are getting the most value out of my product are bigger. They're not early stage startups because if you to get uh, value out of surveys, you need to have either a lot of users, and I'm talking like thousands and not hundreds, um, or and or you have a team uh, which is so big that like opinions or gut feeling is not counting that much anymore. So basically, you you're having a you think like you know like early day early stage founders are often driven by gut feeling and talking with the users. And then it's like uh, less about really like hard numbers. And this works really well. And I'm, I'm still doing this, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm still at that point. But once you're becoming a bigger company, then you want to have some, some, some proof before you start the machine of implementing something. And this is when surveys can really, really get, give you a lot of um, um, peace of mind, actually. And so I realized that the, best customers in the sense of they are getting the most value out of it are more like established startups with attraction or even scale-ups uh, or B2C marketplaces, all these kind of uh, software companies. And with this realization came also going with the prices up. And so today the, the small price starts at uh, 79 uh, if you pay yearly, but more like 99 if you pay monthly. And the, yeah, I mean, there, there are customers paying more than 1000 per month. Like it's really like a spend, which is, uh, uh, I would call maybe not already mid market, but, but, but yeah, definitely not, uh, uh indie hackers now and no early stage, uh, startups or just some of them. And, um, with this knowledge, 
came also the realization that on the upper end, they cannot go self-service. They, they, they cannot go low touch. I mean, even if they tell me, oh, look, I created an account. I understand the software. I know what to do. Uh, they still need to go through legal. They still need to pay invoices uh, on a yearly basis. They still want to have a signature on the terms of service. Uh, they still want to have a security audit and so on and so on. So even if my user, the one who is signing up, would like just to put in his credit card and be done with it, they can't because they're in a bigger company where they have other processes. And this is where my, my colleague uh, Flori comes in, where she's basically for these kind of customers, some kind of project manager, driving the product, the project forward, following up, talking with different stakeholders, and so on and so on. This is why I'm having this uh, dual um, model. If it was up to me, let's do low touch, right? I mean, but <laughs> there's just this reality. If you buy, if you sell to, um, if you sell to to banks or whatever, that that's not how it works, right? So yeah, and this is why you can do both and. Sometimes people are like, oh, I need to decide whether low touch or sales service, uh, sales driven. And I feel like uh, all of it. <laughs> there are customers like it, like this, yeah, and there are customers like that. And some yeah. people like to try it. Some people like to talk. Some people like to whatever. And then if you want to grow your business, then do all of it, right? Mm -hmm. Do you see a tendency? Like, do you see a move more towards enterprise over time or like a, a shift um, somewhere? Right now, it's quite stable, actually. Like, I feel like uh would need to look it up. I would say one-third are custom contracts, okay. custom pricing, yep. two-third is credit card, uh, as is. Like, mm -hmm. That's, I, I think, like, that, that immediately makes me think of T the technical implementation of that kind of pricing structure. I, I don't want to dive into it too much, but I'm, I'm thinking if this is what can happen to a business, it makes a lot of sense to think of your pricing structure when you start building your business as something very flexible, right? Like, how did you how did you think about this? Like, uh, how did you build well, that? Yeah, there was actually one pivotal point, pivotal, I don't know how to say it, P but pivotal, um, I think. Yeah. pivotal, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the beginning, I was charging based on survey responses. The more survey responses you collect per month, the more you pay me. Didn't work out because there were huge companies with uh, where, which were synchronizing all their user data to me. So I was like crunching a lot of user data just to have uh, like 50 responses because they just wanted to survey a, a really tiny segment of the user base. So I switched the model to what I call monthly, or what, no, what is called, uh, commonly called, monthly active users. So the more users you are having, the more data you're synchronizing with my app, the more you need to pay, which is kind of a better proxy for how much value you are actually also getting out of the software. And um, this kind of stuff is baked in into the codes in, this, in a way that I have an admin backend where I can for each account say, this is their quota, uh, then and also I have feature flags. For example, they they can access the translation feature. They can do this and this and this. And the way technically it, it is done is like somebody on a normal plan on the essentials or growth plan um, will have by default all the settings as written in my config file. But I can go in and overwrite them. And then there's this one special plan which is called enterprise plan. And there it's basically 
the default settings are really generous. And I can still also go in and overwrite for every account the thing. And then on the billing side, I using, I'm using charge B, which also allows me to set for every customer on the enterprise plan, uh, a, a custom, um, amount. And so, and this is where you see comes also this, oh, about how I mentioned before that I'm dealing with invoices and stuff all day long. And, uh, the downside is really like the bigger customers. It's so nice if you have suddenly like, $500 MRR on top because there's this one new customer, but this customer needs to have a new invoice in one year. So you need to have a reminder in one year, you're going to send it and you need to send it a couple of weeks before because they takes them some time. And so, yeah, there comes the ops, uh, complexity. With it. Well, I, I guess it's worth it, right? That's, that's kind of what I'm hearing. Like you, but these big customers, they, they, they are value metric is, is pretty, pretty scalable uh i do wonder how much does this cost to run because if you ingest all this data you kind of have to have some kind of cloud hosting and all that is that manageable like how do you manage how it do you is, keep that cost down it is an issue right yeah. um so my approach in the past was always as a tiny team i'm happy to pay more to aws for managed services a managed database manage queuing, all the, you know, the, the SQS, the S3, the RDS. It's such a relief. You just, it just, it's just running. And well, there's a price to it. And the price is uh, now becoming so big that I could actually basically hire somebody, uh, maybe not full time, but I could definitely spend some money on somebody who can help me uh, putting all this on bare metal and uh, let it run for, I don't know, maybe one-tenth of the cost. Oh, oh, because yeah. uh, right now I'm at the point where I'm between 15 and 20% of the MRR, uh, which goes straight to AWS. And um, I know that in the past it was more like for my other businesses, like 5 to 10, which... I don't know if there's a benchmark out there, but I know there are lots of very, very successful businesses which are paying a couple of hundred dollars per month. So um, yeah, the, the cost for me right now is like really one of the, it's definitely a topic. And with 20% of your MRR going straight to the uh, hosting provider, it's painful. Yeah. Oh yeah, that is expensive. It does remind me of what we did with Feedback Panda because we did hosted database, like managed database stuff as well. I think we paid like if, if when we sold, <laughs> we had fifty five thousand in, in MRR, and I think at least five thousand of that was an expense just purely to uh, I think Mongo HQ was the name of it. Compose was the, was the later yeah. name bought by bought by IBM at some point. It's just for a database, which and didn't even 10, have that's ten percent of your MR. Ten percent, uh, but that was almost the only expense we had, so we were good. But you know, it, it's still it's substantial. It's substantial, and you are right. At that point, if you if you pay five thousand dollars a month for something that would cost you maybe a couple hundred in like the, the technical expenses, you could pay the remaining 4,500 to a person to be there all the time and dealing with it. It's just, I always, in, in my own mind, I always thought I'm paying 5,000 to compose because they have a team of 20 people that if something goes down, it's up again because they're working in shifts. If there is like a, a, a zero day exploit somewhere, they immediately patch the system. You know, if a server explodes or wasn't that like in, I, I don't know if it was in France or something recently where there was this flooding 
in a, yeah. in a d- data data center. Like if that happens, somebody's swimming to my server and making yeah. sure it's still running. You know, that's kind of what you pay for at that moment. But yeah, exactly the approach that I had. Like whatever I can uh, uh, in the hosting side, so uh, give to a managed service. And I would re- recommend it actually. Like I would definitely not recommend uh, trying to save 100 bucks in the beginning and then run your own database server and risk your business because yeah. maybe you misconfigured it and your database yeah. is gone, right? That's, I mean, that's that's, risky, yeah. that's a major risk. And yeah, but as I said before, like right now I'm coming to a point where I feel like something should be done about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, you're right though. Like it's not just misconfiguring and then it's kind of gone because it implodes, but also somebody might just really get access to all your customer data, mm. right? So, mm. and, and the more you move into your kind of compliance level enterprise sales, the more you have to be absolutely clear that the thing you checked on their checkbox is actually protected, right? Yes. So, so yes. for the yes. audit. That's another really big point. Uh, for example, in the GDPR world, um, we are hosting in Europe because of that. Um, and AWS allows us to do that. Um, security-wise, the data is encrypted in transit and also at rest. Um, this kind of stuff, like, yeah, you can do all this, but I am not a DevOps engineer. And these guys are super expensive. and yeah, as you said, you, you're not getting this level of reliability uh, yourself. And this is why I'm kind of continuing it with it. And it's already one year that I'm saying I need to reduce the cost by then. <laughs> well, you'll find you'll find the right time for that. Kind of kind of brings me to kind of the, the, the final question. Where what are your future plans for Refiner? Where is this going? What do you what do you plan for the next couple of years? Or do you even have plans? I, I'd like to know. It's a really good question. So like on the, on the product side, there are a couple of things I could do because, um, you know, like with Refiner, I'm basically in the product. That would be a web app or a mobile app where I'm displaying inside the app uh, survey. And a couple of other tools exist. They are like onboarding tool tips or checklists or whatever you can you can do a lot of action stuff inside an app so i could branch out there um there's another opportunity where i could branch out more into the data crunching and maybe add a layer of that you can also send me product usage data then i could do stuff like look uh power users are more satisfied than no power users and i mean you can do that already today with the integrations and our customers are doing that but i could build that in into my product so there's lots of stuff i could do and at the same time i'm feeling like well maybe refiner is just this pro pro tool thing uh this very very specific tool which allows you to do the best possible in-app survey experience and it's fine like that you know like I, i i'm i'm not really i didn't decide on that right now um and on, in terms of the company, like what I would like to do um, is definitely hire support and customer success people so that this is off my chest. Like, because, you know, like being an indie founder or like a solo founder, and everybody knows it, right? It, there's so much freedom. There's so much good parts about it. But one of the huge downside is you are responsible all the time. And, yeah, and that's right. I, I can right now, like when I go on vacation, I can put it down to like 15 to 30 minutes per day on the good days. And I, so I need to check emails in the morning. Uh, and I'm telling myself, well, that's fine. That's a good price to pay for all the freedom which comes along. Um, 
But I think um, one of the goals would be to be at the point where the team is like really bulletproof and I can say, if I don't get an SMS or a phone call, I consider everything is going fine. Nice. That would be the goal. Yeah, that, that sounds like the, the perfect... It's, it's kind of reminds me of what John Warrior was saying in Build to Sell. Like the perfect sellable business is a business that can run without you, where you remove yourself from operations. So that's kind of almost the, the logical follow-up question is like, are you thinking about eventually exiting that business? Is it going to be sold one day? What do you think? Ah, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you never know. Right, well, <laughs> right, right now is not a good time. I think yeah. right now is not the right time. Um, for several reasons, I think the... No, actually not for several reasons. It's just not uh, at the point where I would like to let it go. There's really like just so much stuff I can still do, I want to do. Um, but yeah, let's talk in five years again. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's. I think that's that's the mentality that indie hackers just develop at some point, right? We will see. Mm. We'll see. We will see. It, yeah. Not now, maybe. Depends on the offer, right? It's always it's always a combination of and, that. And, and what you just mentioned, right? Uh, I don't know who said it. Like uh, maybe it was also Kevin. Uh, a business that is easy to to run is and business which is easy to sell. Like basically what you just said before, like in, in a little different words, and it's kind of should be i mean there are times where you're pushing and times where you're giving all you have to make it grow as fast as possible and i feel like the next step for refiner might be this well um uh, it's a marathon let's yep. try to cool things down and then That's everything right. can happen right uh, yeah. maybe, then i can run it for 10 more years because it's yeah, calm exactly That's, or i that's... can sell it whatever I love the, I love the idea of like calming it down because once you're calm, you see more things. Like you're not in this kind of chaotic panic mode because every fire needs to be doused immediately, right? But you you kind of, okay, now this is the way I could go, or let's just slightly move over here. I think that is exactly right. I'm I'm super pumped to just follow your journey along, and I I certainly Thanks. hope you're going to be more active on Twitter. I'm yeah. I'm going to try and follow you on every podcast you go at any point, obviously. But I would love to see you share more of this because I think. The, the a journey of a business that had to pivot like 18 months in and is now profitable and, and growing and, and finding enterprise customers, that is a story that is a super successful compared to many other people's stories, even though you might feel like you're still in the middle of it. But just look at it from somebody who has nothing, right? This is a glowing example of how it could mm. look like. And it's something that I just want to see these little steps that you take off. I want to see what are you trying here? Are you are you branching out to you know your tooltip kind of onboarding thing, or are you actually focusing on just being the product that does this? This is exciting for me to just follow on, along the journey. So I would love for you to do this and. That brings me to my last question. Where can people find more about you and where can they follow that journey that I just promised them you will take them on? <laughs> so as I'm now restarting to be so, uh, active on social media, <clears throat> Twitter is the best place, definitely. Yeah. Like I feel like uh, it's for me still the, the place where I can most easily and most freely uh, just speak my mind about the business and I'm you know, like also Twitter is for me like uh, pure business. I'm not really, I'm not sharing personal stuff there. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, please go to Twitter, M Dowsinger. Uh, I guess you're going to link that up. Yeah, and I, um, <clears throat> I promise, I promise I, I will be more active there. 
<laughs> I don't I don't want to put you on the spot, but I would love to see it because I think the community can benefit so much from you. I think they already have. I certainly have. And again, to bring this to a close, thank you so much for everything you have done over the last six years in being there for people, sharing your story, sharing your knowledge, and for keeping, hopefully, <laughs> keeping keeping at it and, and keeping sharing your story. Moritz, that was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show today. My, my pleasure. I really mean it. And uh, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Thank you. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening to The Bootstrap Founder. You can find me on Twitter, if Twitter is still there, at Arvid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. You find my books and my Twitter course there as well. And if you want to support me and the show, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, get this podcast in your podcast player of choice, and leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. Any of this will really, really help the show. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.